0: of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Stephanie. We have uh, entered into a chapter in Mark full of parables, and uh, the parables uh, often are difficult to understand. Um, They often send us in strange directions and down strange paths, and A surface reading of this parable and the ones around it seem to sort of confirm some of our deepest suspicions about God, that He is essentially a miser with His grace, that He is uh, withholding in His love. He seems to be intentionally hiding His message inside of parables like riddles that only certain people can uh, decipher, can understand. And this was essentially um, Calvin's view, John Calvin, to those, he says, whom he pleases not to illumine, God transmits his doctrine wrapped in enigmas in order that they might not profit from it. Now, it's easy to hate upon John Calvin, especially because most of us know him by caricature. Well, and because of things that he actually said, like that quote. But I think if we're honest, this miserly God, this withholding God is probably closer to our default view than we'd like to think. And maybe this at least partially explains how an ostensibly Christian nation founded on Christian principles can often be so lacking in charity and kindness. Why would we be any different than our God? But if Calvin's idea, or the idea more broadly that Jesus is intentionally hiding salvation from people by teaching in parables, then you would think that they would be a lot more complicated than they are. You'd expect sort of Byzantine plots and complicated characters and twists and turns and red herrings. But instead, Jesus talks about lamps and baskets and seeds and sickles and harvest. He's talking about agricultural metaphors, what literally all of his followers are perfectly familiar with. Now, there is and can be a cryptic aspect to his parables. There are surprising elements that undercut the way that most people think about God and think about salvation. And this causes people to respond like we often do, to information that contradicts our notions about the way things are. We respond to that sort of information or claim or proclamation with disbelief, with skepticism, or maybe with, with anger. That can't be true. That can't be the way things are. But when you hear Jesus explain why he teaches in parables, it's, it's not ultimately to intentionally limit the population of the kingdom, but because it's not time yet. These parables are, more often than not, exceedingly straightforward. But in the technique of show me, don't tell me, he's putting doctrine inside of stories. And these parables are like the TARDIS and Doctor Who or the wardrobe and Chronicles of Narnia. They're much bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. And if you're willing to go in, If you're willing to open yourself up to their truth, then there will always be room to explore more, to learn more, to experience more by these simple, very straightforward stories. They're endlessly applicable, and they're unfathomably deep. Now, the flip side of this is that if we obstinately refuse to be shown or told, like the scribes and the Pharisees, these parables can be endlessly befuddling and confusing and, yes, condemning. And what insight that these people may have had of God to begin with will become more and more useless as the nature of Jesus' kingdom becomes more and more clear. So, what is this meaning that's hidden in these parables that's hard to accept? In this whole section of chapter 4, with the lamp and the mustard seed, as well as the seeds and the soils that we looked at last week, and really everything that we've been reading about and learning since chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is telling us that his kingdom the way that the world really is, is very different from the world that we are used to. That even when things are happening just as they should, according to God's timeline, to the participants in the story, not just those in the parable, but us participating in the story of the kingdom, things can feel off and wrong. In fact, backwards. The crucifixion being the most obvious example of this and even those who walked most closely with Jesus often felt confused and disorienting disoriented that life in his kingdom was often three steps forward and two steps back or maybe more often three steps forward and four steps back it was confusing it was hard was difficult to square life as they knew it with the life that Jesus was proclaiming. Now, maybe you have started some regimens during the lockdown, some learning or viewing things that um, have opened up new horizons for you. And I've been watching um, at night old or at least older movies that are deemed to be classics or significant. So films by Directors like Tarkovsky and Cassavetes and Truffaut, and with with some exceptions, these movies are made by smaller, what we would call kind of art house production companies, or even self-financed, instead of being produced by big studios. And the writers, the producers, the directors, and often the actors stay in that lane, that is of small art house filmmaking. Not because they don't have the talent or the know-how to make big Hollywood films, but they don't want to. They're not interested in sort of Michael Bay, tentpole, big explosion movies. Now, often after I watch these movies, there are parts that maybe I didn't catch or didn't understand. What were they trying to convey? And I read these reviews and almost invariably they say... Well, this movie did not make much money. Very few people saw this movie. But this movie changed the landscape of cinema forever. It changed how people approach film. It changed how people approach storytelling. Or like what Brian Eno said famously of The Velvet Underground's first record. He said that while the album only sold 30,000 copies in its early years, everyone who bought one started a band. In other words, mass appeal isn't always indicative of the quality of the product. And the quality of the product doesn't always lead to mass appeal. Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on earth, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants. It's pretty pretty straightforward, right? This isn't the, the riddle of the Sphinx. Very small things can grow into very large things, but you have to be patient. What appears to be insignificant in its early stages can become very large over time, and you can hide and take shelter underneath it. The challenge, you see, of the parable isn't that it's convoluted, but that we don't like the conclusion. Jesus' hearers didn't want to wait for him to drive out the Romans with organic growth, with mustard seeds. They wanted a sword. They wanted the Romans to be thrown out on their ear now, today. And we don't like waiting either. We want fast we want fast computers fast internet fast service fast delivery we want short waits short lines shortcuts we want six pack abs from 6 minute exercises right we want children who do what we want them to do the first time not before we count to 3 we want a god who fixed all of the world's problems and all of our problems yesterday. And what Jesus says is, friends, this is going to feel slow. This is going to feel like a seed growing gradually into a large tree. Now, maybe like the disciples, maybe like me, that can be disillusioning. And maybe you've become jaded to this whole idea of slowness, of waiting to see, of organic growth. Maybe you've become disillusioned with this as an answer to the world's problems. To why life often feels off. And maybe you've come to a place where you're angry with God. You're angry with this answer. And this isn't a modern problem. This isn't unusual. That was the response of many of Jesus' hearers, even his own followers. We pray and we pray and we pray, and a solution to our problem doesn't seem to get any closer. And you find yourself asking, if the kingdom is here, why am I still so sad? If the kingdom is here, why am I still so lonely? Slow is one thing, but I've been waiting for years for a partner, a child, for happiness. You name it. I look around at the suffering in this world, even pre-COVID, and wonder, how can this be the kingdom? Well, the last thing, friends, I want to do is to belittle these questions and maybe say too quickly, didn't you hear what Jesus said? Didn't he tell you it was going to be slow? Didn't he say it was going to be confusing? His words do, they do unlock an important door. But it takes time. It takes experience. It takes prayer. It takes Consistently walking through that door with faith, reordering our thinking, it takes consistent time to turn that key again because what we normally think is that slow equals weak, that slow equals insignificant, that slow equals not there at all. A glacier, if you think about it, moves at, well, it moves at a a glacial pace. And yet, it has enormous power. So much of the landscape that we inhabit was shaped by advancing and receding glaciers. Where we build our cities, where we get our water from, where roads are constructed was determined by something that if you stood by it had no apparent movement. Millions of years ago, the kingdom of God and what we have to get used to as people of faith is that it often seems to move at a glacial pace. But it doesn't mean that it's not powerful. The kingdom of God, if we use the key and open that door, if we walk into these stories that the parables are telling us, they have the power to remake us and to remake our world, but it will take time. The eyes of faith choose to believe that, well, there are things that God is doing that we are not aware of that are going to be far more beautiful and far more astonishing and far more lovely than they would have been had they arrived on our preferred time, timetable There are no shortcuts. There are no no quick fixes. Religion says, get moving, get busy, make it work. If things aren't getting better, it's your fault. If the church is struggling, someone is to blame. But the gospel tells us that Jesus' kingdom grows organically over time, that he is the vine and that we are the branches. But if we stay connected to him for the long haul, that substantial and lasting change can come. It will come. A seed goes down into the ground and does its work beneath the surface. And what we see, what we learn from this, what we should remember is that God is often working in hidden, in an unseen, in unimpressive ways, in and through our struggle, for example, in and through our suffering, in and through our failure, in and through a a small church in Portland trying its best to make it through a global pandemic. But we have trouble with trouble. When we're suffering, when it feels like life is falling apart, we almost always see it as a sign of God's absence, which, if you think about it, is quite strange for a faith whose most prominent sign is a cross. Nowhere is the surprising, inverted nature of Jesus' kingdom seen more clearly than at the cross, in him rescuing the world in apparent defeat. The mustard seed must end its career as a seed before it can be transformed. It must go all the way to death before life springs up, it springs up in a different form. Jesus is saying, friends, that, that he is that seed that brings new life. That He goes down into the grave so that he can be transformed and so that in his transformation, the world can be transformed. And what we have to remember is that those three days must have been agonizing for his disciples, for his friends, for his mother. And yet, those days of mourning gave way to a celebration like no other. Surely they knew then at the resurrection like they could have come to know in no other way that God really was for them and that new creation was breaking out in the midst of the old. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would have faith to see your new creation springing up. I pray that you would give us eyes to see little moments of beauty, flowers that are opening, children that are being born, our lives that are being sustained even in the midst of a global crisis. Father, I pray that while we can lament and while we can certainly bring these bigger concerns and these bigger losses to you, I pray that you would help us to see how you are at work, that we would take note of that, that maybe we would even have stories or moments or anecdotes to share in these next few moments as we share together of ways that you, you are being seen in the midst of our broken world and that it would give us hope to face another week with hope. Father, I pray that we would be more on the lookout for those moments of, of new life, of new creation, of seeds that are being planted, and would you then give us patience to wait for them to grow? Would you give us patience as individuals, patience as parents, patience as roommates who are stuck with one another for quite some time, and patience as a church that you are with us and for us and you are for our world. And we pray in your son's name. Amen.